Yes, there it is. Ta-da! There we go. <laughs> as, as my my mother would say, now now we're cooking with gas. So, <laughs> uh, classic phrase. But anyways, um, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Station Square podcast. Um, we kind of had some just figuring out this whole new Zoom technical doohickeys and whatnot. But um, yeah, hope everybody's staying um safe out there and they're um enjoying this lovely california southern california storm rain because lord boy howdy do we really need it during this drought so today um i figured you know what might as well adjust this time to just speak to a very 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 um well-known name in the animation industry um he has done work for i mean as i'm seeing um you know if you look from his collection of books and gallery right behind him, you should know that he's worked on many, um, a lot of impactful films and films that have been like, you know, part of our childhoods. And to say, I mean, I'm just, I'm just kind of rambling on at this point. So um, yeah, allow me to introduce Mr. Tom Saito or Sito. I'm just really, I usually get, I'm sorry? Sito. Sito, yes. Okay. so. I, I it's kind of like this thing on the podcast where I just kind of mispronounce people's last names for some reason. So um, bear with me. So anyways, thank you for joining me today. <laughs> okay, thank you. Of course. Um, and what I usually do is I have the guests, you know, um, give their body of like, you know, list their resume and portfolio, what stuff that you've been doing, what you've done and what you're working on today. And yeah, just to get to know a little bit more about you. Okay, hi. So, um, yeah, I I uh I was originally born in uh, New York City, and I was born in Brooklyn before it was cool, when when it was a dump, and uh, <laughs> and uh, now it's too hip. Um, but uh, 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 I got into animation in the mid nineteen seventies, uh, working for for Richard Williams on a on a a, a feature, uh, musical called The uh, Adventures of Raggedy Ann and Andy, and um made a lot of good friends and I was kind of fortunate in that I began my career at animation when a lot of golden age artists were ending their careers and and and, and Dick Williams loved hiring like famous old animators and pairing them up with young people so you know I had a chance to work with Art Babbitt who's the guy who created Goofy and the Queen and the and Snow White and uh and Geppetto I also worked with, uh, got to assist Grim Natwick, who was the animator who took a blank piece of paper and designed Betty Boop. You know, I, and it's funny because he was like 87 and I was like, you know, 20. <laughs> it was like, and I was absolutely terrified, but, but it was great fun. And um, yeah, since then, I kind of moved around to New York and Canada and Hollywood. And uh, I was working uh, at Richard. Uh, I started at Disney. Well, in the 80s, I did He-Man and the Masters of the Universe and She-Ra and all. And uh, I uh, storyboarded and directed those. And uh, and then I started at, at, at again working with Richard Williams on Who Framed Roger Rabbit, originally in England, in London. And then came back to Disney. And I was an, um, an artist on uh, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Lion King uh fantasia pocahontas and uh then i went over with the first group to form uh dreamworks and uh um uh, and uh was a story artist on uh prince of egypt 
and uh, was, uh, had a story for a while on Shrek, the first Shrek, and um, and then uh, Spirit, the uh, horse horse picture, and uh, then I went over to uh, Warner Brothers to direct Osmosis Jones, uh, with Chris Rock and Lawrence Fishburne and all, and that and that was so successful when it came out that I was soon on the street looking for work, and <laughs> well, <laughs> and uh, and. Um, also did Looney Tunes back in action later on, and uh, yeah, and, and currently I'm I'm a, a professor uh, teaching animation at the University of Southern California, and I've written a couple of books, uh, mostly you know about animation history because being uh, being in touch with and knowing a lot of the older artists, I was sort of able to get their stories, so I wrote a a, a, a book about the animation unions focusing on the on the Disney strike of 1941. I wrote a history of computer graphics because I basically watched it happen. You know, I, I mean, when when I was starting, the most uh, technologically important thing we had um, was a pencil, electric pencil sharpener. You didn't have to turn the little crank. And now everything's digital, you know. But I remember when that was all, you know, you know, happening. And um, the last thing I did was just a little, little crazy. Um, but I figured the holidays are coming up. Was um, I actually I actually wrote wrote a cookbook? <laughs> nice. Yeah, and it's all animation people. So because uh, you know when I worked with Grim Natwick, uh, uh, the creator Betty Boot, uh, he was from Missouri originally, and 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 when we were done, he gave me his chili recipe, and I've got I got Grim Natwick's chili recipe, you know. And I got another recipe from, uh, you know, I got a Walt Disney's chili recipe and I got uh, Mark Davis's favorite martini. And then when I was in Japan uh, uh, judging a children's film festival, some of the guys at Ghibli gave me Miyazaki's uh, personal ramen recipe. And I found out a lot of animators like to cook, on the, uh, you know, when you because, you know, you spend all your time staring into a screen, staring at this light for hours and hours and it gets really exhausting. So you want to do something where you're not hurting your eyes. So I, I notice a lot of artists like to do things like garden or, and, and a lot of people like to cook. So um, I, I joke with my publisher and I said, I could do a cookbook. And they're like, that's a great idea. I'm like, oh, okay. So I started asking old, you know, old animators and all like if they had a favorite recipe. And yeah, I got a recipe from Chuck Jones's family and from Frank Thomas's family and from Bill Hanna of Hanna-Barbera, uh, you know, plus modern people like Pete Doctor and Michael Giacchino and all. And uh, um, they all sent me recipe. And it's things from very complicated recipes to very simple. So like some um, some artists actually are like gourmets and are actually do like a lot of like heavy duty, uh, uh, you know, cooking. And then some have very simple stuff. Uh, there was a guy who did uh, death metal videos named John Schnepp, who passed away a year ago. But uh, he gave me a recipe for, for for picklebacks, which is take a shot of bourbon, take a shot of, of pickle juice, throw back one, throw back the other, repeat. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> you know, so, so uh, you know, it's, it, it runs the gamut from very complicated to very simple. But um, that's what I've been working. Uh, that's uh, it, that came out really nice, you know. Very and, and put a lot of good little stories in it too. Besides just cooking, it's just like side things, like you know, artists used to um, 
play practical jokes on one another and just regular studio life you know you know what it's like like that so anyway i don't know if that answers your question <laughs> i'd have answers a lot of questions oh good <laughs> yeah um just definitely makes my job a lot easier um and it's really interesting that you mentioned roger rabbit because i see the little guy just hanging out right behind you yep that's right there he is yeah yeah. <laughs> right. yeah so it's really sweet um and speaking of richard williams um i actually do have his uh the animator survival kid the master edition um and i know it i have it sitting um just give me one second um i know i have it somewhere Yeah, so this book is just really, yeah, I was surprised at how gigantic this really is. Like, uh, you have all of these pages here. Uh, I don't know if you can see very well, but yeah, it just is filled with so much um, that he just went through over the years, over his time of working in animation. So that's pretty much what I got because I'm somebody who is always like, I just love animation. That's actually how I got into it was interesting. I became interested with performing, um, creating content for like, um, and I know that there's like other podcasts out there that um, they are really, they have a huge love and passion for animation. Like um, recently with the, what's that one pod? Um, Who's in my head podcast that you were on with Julian and you know, the crew. Um, yeah. So it's watching podcasts like, you know, what's in my head that just really, and when you give insightful interviews about working in the industry, that's, um, you know, getting to speak with um, so many people throughout the years and just learning um, just uh, the nuts and bolts of the behind the scenes of how these movies are made. It's just really, it just always fascinated me, even as a very, very young kid. So it's just, um, I'm just so honored to just be speaking with somebody who has worked um for as long especially working with um legends like you said with chuck jones um uh richard williams and a bunch of others that i'm leaving out it's like it's just it feels very very like humbling it really is mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah so you said that you were born and raised in brooklyn new york um how would you say that the industry was like because i know that it is much different now than it was back in the day so how would you say that like when you first got started like being born from new york how would you say that the whole atmosphere was like for you as a young well, animation student yeah well it, you know it, yeah the, there was a lot of change from when i started and in fact the book i'm currently writing right now is i'm writing a book about the animation renaissance like 1986 to 2003 where uh you know where in 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 the seventies, animation was seen as a dying art form, like like the wasn't a lot of animation being done. I mean, the Disney guys did their did their films every once in a while, but really they relied on the uh, on the revenue from the theme parks to keep the company going. And um, there was that generational shift where the golden age artists who had done the beautiful movies in the forties and thirties and forties they were retiring. 
and kids like me were coming in. And, and, and a lot of the old guys would say to me things like, don't bother with animation. That's dying. That's not going anywhere. You know, get a, get a real job, you know. Or, or, or one old animator uh, told me and Eric Goldberg, like, you know, all that, all that um, old animation you love, like Pinocchio and Tex Avery and all, all that stuff was done with depressionary economics. That's never coming back. The future is more movies like Yellow Submarine, more Yellow Submarine. <laughs> and that's the and that was the that was the the prevailing wisdom of the time. Like in, in 1975, if you told me, like uh, you know, 15 years in the future, the most popular show on television is going to be a primetime cartoon with a yellow kid with a jagged head who says "Cowabunga," you know, <laughs> say you're out of your mind, you know, it, it, it was impossible. But yet, all that turnover happened in the late 80s. Where suddenly, suddenly, like uh, animation was cool again, you, you know, and and animation for adults, which is that you know, in in most countries of the world, in in um, and a lot of um, you know, Europe and Japan and different places, um, uh, you know, uh, adults reading cartoon, uh, you know, reading comic books and watching animation is considered normal. You know, there's there's adult comics and there's children's comics, and in America, it fell into this rut of animations just for kids period it's just for kids and you know and it took a long time to kind of break us out of that uh mindset and get into the point where no as an adult you can enjoy you can enjoy some animation you know it's fine you know i, I you know it was such a big um breakthrough it was like it was such a revelation when beauty and the beast came out and 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 i would go like on a wednesday night to the local Burbank theater and there's like a 1030 at night show and there's a there's a line to get in all adults no children to see an animated film and I'm like yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know this is what we wanted you know this is what we were all been working towards is to create is to create that kind of atmosphere so it was a long time coming and I feel like uh you know now that I'm like in my 60s and all you know i feel like we're sort of passing on a healthier industry than the one we inherited and and hopefully it'll keep going on oh yeah um and it's just really interesting with how you said that um with this mentality that all animation is for kids when it's clearly not it's always meant to be for all ages um i know when you go back to like the 30s 40s and 50s they were like, keep in mind, this was back during the time that they were releasing these shorts um, before a movie. So they were just kind of like shorts that they would they would play in theaters. And it wouldn't be until years later that they started getting the recognition that they very much deserve. I'm talking like Disney, Warner Brothers, MGL, um, Walter Lance, The Flygers. Um, and it just kind of goes on. So, um, and... It was just really like when we see how animation had definitely evolved like during those times because it's really like it's funny that you say that like it was kind of like a dying art you know like i mean i know that it was during the time that like it wasn't really doing so hot until like i want to say the 80s 90s i want to say um so it was really 
I mean, it's fine when you go back and say that, like, oh, it's kind of a dying art. It's like those days are long gone. But then, like, people didn't realize at the time that a new generation of artists are just um, leading the next generation of cartoonists um, to people that are going to become, like, future, like, big names in the industry. And now we're seeing that. I mean, I just did an interview with Fred Seibert, um, who has done, who has worked with Nickelodeon, Cartoon Network, and we were just talking about, like, um, how every generation, there's always going to be someone who is inspired by this one person, and they're going to create um, their own, they're going to leave their mark on the industry, and this, the process is going to keep continuing because animation is going to continue to, it's going to keep on growing, it's going to keep on evolving, and like with what we're getting with technology um, and other uh, techniques and software that we're learning even to this very day. Like, I'd say that animation, it's not, it's certainly not going to go away anytime soon. And it's nowhere near, like, I'm not even sure if, like, it is weekend one iota. I think it's just going to continue to grow and it's showing, and it's showing no, no signs of dying anytime soon. And who knows what the future is going to bring? Who knows? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, when I was starting, uh, there was a clear delineation between that you you either did you did cartoon animation or you worked on grown up films, you know. And yeah. it was like, and there was and there was a big divide between them. Now everything's all mixed up. Where there's a lot of uh, a lot of animation and everything we do, you know, everything you look at on your phone or watch on on broadcast and all, you know, there's so much animation involved in it. Um, I was talking with a friend of mine. Who works at Weta down in New Zealand, and um, he worked on all the Lord of the Rings movies and all, and uh, and he had just finished um, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, and I said I said okay Richie so, um um which Rocket the raccoon you know with the big gun, and Groot you know the tree, I said how are they done what what was the process, and he goes oh they're keyframe, he goes okay so they're animated. Like just like Bart Simpson or Bugs Bunny or Ariel, they're animated. It's just the rendering looks more realistic to match with live action. So they're animated characters working alongside uh, live characters. And he's like, yeah, yeah. So I said, okay. You know, just like um, the last, star, uh, you know, The Rise of Skywalker, I think, you had two actors in that movie who were dead. <laughs> like Carrie Fisher and Peter Cushing, yet they're still acting. <laughs> like you know, they 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 brought those characters, and you know, and and there's a certain amount of animation involved in that as well. You, you know, you think about um, you think about a movie like uh, you know, well, like the Avatar movies. It's like it's like you know, the Avatar movies of James Cameron can actually qualify as an animated feature if they wanted to, because it's it's seventy percent animation. It's like how much live action was in the first Avatar? About like five minutes of Sigourney Weaver smoking a cigarette in a space, you know, in a laboratory, and the guy in the wheelchair climbing on the sunbed, and all the rest is animation. <laughs> you know, there's no seven foot blue people walking around riding flying dragons. You know, <laughs> it's that's all animation. Yeah, like I said, technology is just yeah, it's just. I just don't even know how they do it, but hey, I mean, like, when you really go back and, like, learn how, like, Walt Disney got
got his movies made is just it's really amazing that um they're now regarded as the beloved classics that they are today like particularly the first five like snow white uh fantasia pinocchio um dumbo bambi you know it's kind of like i think i kind of considered that as like um the finest like this is kind of like the period where like disney like as far as the art form goes like in animation history i think disney was kind of like at the top of the industry and then um you mentioned there was the strike of 1941 which um is something that um disney in its lifetime had never really truly recovered from which is um quite unfortunate but i don't really dwell upon like the negative or like the politics of what goes on um i just kind of like to focus on the 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 achievements that we have received that we've gotten in animation like the disney movies warner brothers mgm like um so many great names have come and gone but their impact is something that cannot be underestimated and it's something and we're not going to forget we'll never forget them because of the marvelous work that they made in animation um that's why i i just really adored folks like richard williams um people like ralph bakshi don bluth and people who are making these exceptional films um because they and they approach it like very very different like philosophies of animation but they each have their own like unique flavor to it that really push the boundaries of what animation can i mean that's like the reason why we kind of got grew out of that little like right because of people like you know blue then bakshi and eventually disney started um making they and then it would lead to like the disney renaissance and we still got mr williams so it was just kind of like people like them just really helped save animation from being i mean like disney almost literally went out of like I think their animation department just kind of almost literally shuddered from what I've learned. Um, I think there was it was the time that they were making doing like the Black Cauldron and the Cauldron, I think. Yeah. So um, and they came really close to shutting down in the 80s. So imagine like if we didn't have the Disney Renaissance, who knows where animation would have been if it wasn't for movies like Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Lion King, so on and so forth. Like just imagine. <laughs> yeah. So um, going back to New York again. Um, so you've studied animation for, I mean, you're the son of a fireman, which is really interesting. Um, high School of Art and Design, you went to School of Visual Arts, and you also went to the Art Students League of New York. So um, from your time of schooling and in your time of, you know, studying and whatnot, um, how would you describe your experience? Like, what was the thing that you really got the most out of? And what was sort of like the lesson that you learned in school that really stuck with you? And it's something that you that still carries with you even to this very day and quite possibly for the rest of your life, if we're gonna be totally honest. Yeah, well, uh, actually, it, it, uh, what, I, what I really kind of learned is, was, that, was that you, you know the old the old uh, cliche we stand we you can see far when you stand on the shoulders of giants and 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 you know there's a lot of people running around you know holding a stylus going i'm an animator now you know it, you know you know i downloaded a program and like you know it's not it's not that easy you know and 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 um what 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 i learned about animation is that it's not just 
drawing funny pictures and making them move around it's performance it's you're basically acting you're an actor with a, uh, you're an actor with a pencil or now a stylus and 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 it's how you make something move because one of the things one of my old teachers used to say was you could put anything under under a single frame camera and move push it around you know you could put a you know you know rock or something and move around it's going to move around big deal it's how it moves around and and and, and what it does is 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 entertainment and and you you um uh, which you know we learn from the older artists just like um just like actors look at technique of old actors or even like sports figures like you know ball players uh, you know you know talk about the um about the technique of of ball players from generations ago so we learn from old artists and we learned like you know like what they did was successful and what wasn't successful and um uh, you know and richard williams was a big was a big proponent of that he really wanted us to learn from older artists and to get things from them and one of the other things that they told us was um uh, cartooning and animation animation involved in cartooning was just another form of of um of of uh of drawing that it comes out of life drawing and you know so so getting in front of the model you know you know and 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 you know and drawing is just a, a it's a, it's a basic exercise for you it's like shakespeare to an actor like it, it never goes away you're always going to use it you know and then and then once you once you learn the, the the techniques and the practices of the older artists you want to add your own touch to it you know to things that uh, that mean something to you it's like one of the um there was an old animator used to work at cherry tunes and at uh and and uh at paramount pictures and uh and, and he once told me he said when you become an animator you become a part of the priesthood of the goddess you become a devotee of the goddess and you you know you get your robes and everything and you shave your head or whatever you're now like part of the priesthood but then the goddess says to you what are you bringing me so like just knowing it is not enough you have to bring something from yourself and you have to it's your personal thing so you know brad bird was raised in a small seacoast town in, in 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 the northwest you know i think in oregon or something and so so he brings that sensibility i'm an inner city kid i grew up on subway trains and buses and things and i i, I don't relate really to the to the countryside but so I bring an urban sensibility to my stuff. So it's it's finding that that uh, finding your voice and and being able to connect with people is uh, is fun. Yeah. Um, so I know that um, you also met your wife at CSVA, and um, yeah, since you've been you two have been married for like over forty years, how would you say that it also helped you with your um life and also um you know with your animation career in general well you'll find you'll find in 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 businesses like film uh you know in media uh, you know animation and, and live action films too a lot of times professional partnerships or professional relationships are are uh, uh you know are usually the best because it's a little hard for people who don't understand the, the business to relate to like why you're uh you know you know what you're going through you know you know like you come home from work and you go 
God, I didn't get the pig. I wanted the pig, but no, they gave it to him. I could have done the pig. <laughs> you know, you know, and your spouse is suspect is expected to go, oh. <laughs> you know, when when like if they don't understand, they're like, what the hell are you doing? Grow up, you know. So so the nice thing about having uh, you know, because my wife um you know was in the business as well and she's worked on a lot of movies too she's worked on you know little mermaid and and roger and and uh she also did live action films like pocahontas like um pacific rim and uh iron man and a bunch of those things so so you know we the two of us had like large you know lives and uh and the nice thing is that you know when it's a good partnership so when one of us is on overtime the other one puts the garbage out and feeds the cats and <laughs> changes the litter you know and so so there's a nice kind of uh give and take that way you know and and uh we have no regrets it's been fun right so um yeah after you graduated graduated from school um then that's pretty much when you started um working with people like harvey kurtzman and shamus colain and then that's also when you worked with, like you said, you mentioned earlier that you worked on Raggedy and an Andy, a musical adventure um, with Richard Williams. So I got it. Um, I was kind of curious about how that whole production, like, you know, because I know that Richard's productions are kind of known for being very ambitious and, you know, there's a lot of like delays and whatnot, long production. So I wanted to ask first, uh, before I even get to the other film that I mentioned, in, I'll mention it second. So uh, with Raggedy Ann and Andy, um, what was what were some of your fondest memories of working on that little production? Well, uh, back in 1976. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, that was a, um, that was like sort of an exceptional you know kind of project because the the uh the scene in new york at that time was sort of the tail end of the madman era so it was mostly it was all commercials and you know, so lots of commercials there's some beautiful commercials you know i mean i worked for jack zander who's an old animator from mgm he's an old tom and jerry animator but but everybody we were all doing commercials all doing things like Welchade and cereal and tony the tiger and stuff like that you know um and then and then this project for Richard Williams comes up and 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 it's this big movie musical like big budget musical with you know all full animation you know all you know because at that time too a lot of animation was limited you know everybody was doing very budget conscious stuff and this one was like just go for it make it as 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 beautiful and complex as you could the um the guy who wrote the music for Raggedy Ann and Andy Joe Raposo was the composer of all the Sesame Street music. You know, like he wrote, can you tell me how to get how to get to Sesame Street? You know, and yeah. uh, it's not easy in green, you know, things like that. Yeah. And uh, so so it was a it was a very high profile musical. Um ultimately it didn't it didn't do well you know theatrically even though it had a good release. Um it it's almost like it was like sort of predating the kind of musicals that we were going to do in in you know in the 1990s it was almost like too early i think you know because really even you know other musicals didn't do as well at that time either you know in in the 70s it wasn't really an era of musicals and i remember um working one night on overtime on the project and, and and one of our assistants um 
there's, I, I mean, a, a, a fellow assistant, a friend named Skeets, came in and, and he had just gone to like a New York Comic Con where he saw a premiere and, he, a, a, you know, a sneak preview of a new movie. This is like the summer of 77. And, and Skeet says, God, I just saw this amazing movie. It's going to blow everybody away. It's called um, Star Wars. It's going to be really big. And I'm like, oh, Skeet, you know, I, I, don't, I don't like science fiction. I, you know, I'm going to, I'm waiting for Revenge of Billy Jack, you know. And he's like, no, no, man, this is going to blow everything else out of the water. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, okay. It was a really big hit. <laughs> like, who knew? You know, it just, that was another film where nobody was expecting it. And it just came out of nowhere and blew everybody away. Uh, uh, talking to friends who had worked on Star Wars, they were saying things that even when they were finishing the movie, nobody ex expected the thing to be a hit. Um, when, they, when they were doing like the final mixes on the film, they couldn't get preferred studio time because everything like um, Martin Scorsese had a movie about surfing <laughs> and that got all the good, good uh, studio time. And Star Wars got the graveyard shift, which was like 11 at night till four in the morning, <laughs> you know, which is, you know, that was the only time that they could get to like mix their film. So, they, so uh, you know, even Alec Guinness, you know, the uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi was like, eh, it's a kiddie movie, you know. Uh. <laughs> I remember him actually being interviewed where he goes, he was being, you know, he's in his whole Obi-Wan robes and, he, and, and, and he's telling the camera, this is a very nice kiddie movie. Take the family, have a good time. <laughs> like like he didn't know it would be so gigantic you know the, the hit it was but um yeah the 70s was that kind of weird phase of um again a generational shift and the studios were going through a generational shift which was uh from the 50s the studios were like big dream factories huge lots and all and um, they had gone through a um, economic downturn because of television and and the shrinking market for 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 movies, and a lot of people, um, a, a lot of these studios, uh, you know, either went out of business or they realigned with big corporations. So that's when, like, you know, um, Universal was bought by Seagrams, the whiskey company, and you know, then later you had you know Sony buying up Columbia and TriStar, and uh, MGM. You know, so so there was this realignment going on of these studios, and they were either the ones that didn't get into television would die, and then the other ones would change, would just do all television. So so and animation was kind of part of that, and all like trying to find itself and its new audience, and it really it took like till the eighties to when this stuff all started to come back again. Yeah, yeah. Because that's because Raggedy Andy and Andy um, is really, I mean, I just really find this stuff so fascinating, fascinating on how like Star Wars was just coming out, um, the first one. And it's like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. This is the next big thing. And it's like, really? Okay. And then, people, and then who knew that it would become a cultural, cultural phenomenon like almost 50 years later? Yeah, yeah, like for about like half a century now. So it's like, wow, okay, maybe George Lucas was onto something. <laughs> yeah, the other interesting thing that was happening at that time 
was um, was I was working in Midtown Manhattan, and I heard from friends that out in Long Island in the suburbs there was this little um, uh, uh, institute called the New York Institute of Technology. And there was a rogue millionaire, uh, uh, like an Elon Musk type, named Alex Shore, and and Alex Shore was was hiring uh, computer engineers because he wanted to make a feature length movie by with a computer, and you know and 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 you know we were all like that's crazy like who the hell you you know at that time computers were only used by like James Bond villains. <laughs> you know, like they were like these big wall-sized things in the man from uncle that they were going to be used to blow up the world so the idea of making a cartoon with a computer it's like drawing with a missile like you know nobody's nobody's going to use that stuff but what 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 we found out about later what you know like i knew later was that the 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 people that were hired at new york tech People like Ed Catmull and Alvy Ray Smith and Jim Blinn and Ralph Guggenheim and Bill Reeves would later go on to be the the uh, uh, the core of a company we all know as Pixar, because they started at New York Tech and then after Star Wars they all went to work for George Lucas as the Lucasfilm Graphics Group, and then and then after that they became they became Pixar, but they were there at the very beginning as well. And and uh, uh, it, it's just interesting that these different aspects were happening. Um, after Raggedy Ann, I, I was working with Seamus Culhane on a children's film, and and I was like his, his assistant. And Seamus um, was an old animator who he was in, he animated on Snow White, he animated on Gulliver's Travels, he animated on Pinocchio, you, you know. And now like he was an old man, and I was a, I was a kid. And um, but I remember he used to go over to the New York uh, Institute of Technology to see what they were doing with the computers. And and he came back and and we'd be sitting in his office and I'd be working on stuff and he'd be typing on his manual typewriter. And he'd look up at me and he goes, you know, computers are coming. Going to change everything. Business is never going to be the same. And I looked at him and I was like, that's nice, old man. Lie down, you know. <laughs> like who the hell knew like yeah it really did become a big uh, it really was a big change and and he saw it coming that's why i dedicated my computer history book to him so man that is amazing that is really something <laughs> yeah um because i think on that movie by raggy and andy you met eric goldberg art babbitt john kingmaker and you know a bunch of other folks um and I mean, and then you, I think you kind of were doing like commercial animation work at that time. Um, I mean, you spent like a few years working in New York and Toronto, but um, yeah, and then you've moved to LA. So how was it like making the transition, like moving from um, NYC to LA um, to work in animation, yeah, like for well, companies out here? Yeah, I think the move of New York to LA is like the biggest at the time was like the biggest change you could do because they're very, they're very different climates. They're very different um, social working climates and things. You know, like the New York studios were all these like little places doing commercials in Sesame street mainly. And you come out here and it's all the big factories, Hanna-Barbera. Hanna-Barbera had like 1200 people and 12, 12 series going at the same time. And, you know, and all these like famous artists walking around. And uh, uh, and everything was on a big scale, big features and things. 
um, I, I used to say that the difference between working in New York and working in LA is that you're working on a film in New York and you go, okay, for the voice, let's get somebody who's, who sounds like William Shatner. And when you're working in LA, you go, let's get William Shatner. <laughs> and you could do it. <laughs> you know, he'll show up. Like I found out later, like a lot of celebrities like to do animated voices because it's an easy gig. You know, like you don't have to get up at four o'clock in the morning in a trailer out in the desert and be in makeup by 5 a.m., you know, and put in a 10 hour day. You know, you just go to the studio, you know, do your voice work, and then you go home at five o'clock and be with your family, you know, and, and they're like, oh, I like this, <laughs> you know, and, you know, and nobody cares what you look like, you know. I remember like Sharon Stone came in to record. Uh, for, for ants and uh, you know she was in sweats and she had a zit on her nose you know <laughs> like nobody, nobody's paying attention you know and then later on when you're you know you're out in public that's when you that's when you're made up to look like wow <laughs> you know like completely different like I ran into her at, a, at an event at the academy and it was like she was dazzling you know she was so, so pretty so so I mean, it's where she is <laughs> yeah 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 so you know but so 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 animated voices are like are kind of fun you know for, for a number of celebrities the the it took a um i mean in the beginning years ago they didn't use celebrities uh partly was that you know the money was not as good as it is as it is now so you know celebrities weren't being paid celebrity wages you know which that kind of started i think with robin williams you know yeah. with Aladdin and stuff that's when it all started to become big name voices and all oh yeah I mean it was kind of like that before where where I know that the Disney films of old they would actually credit the celebrities but I think this trend really started kicking off taking full like effect like I know that it was especially obvious with like Robin Williams now um there's an interesting little history I mean I know I, re I remember watching a video um, not too long ago talking about the history between Disney and Robin Williams, which is very interesting. Too long to name here, but to even go over here. But essentially, it was um, it kind of sort of um, was the movie where it's like, oh, yeah, big A-list celebrities like that's going to they're like huge money makers. And I get it. I know like. Because in Hollywood, that's pretty much how it is, where you get celebrities to do the main leads, like the voices and the voiceover artists. Uh, they're calling for extras. It's kind of been something that's been um, ongoing for like a long time. So I know that, um, like I said, I'm not really like, I'm not one to talk because I know there's other animation historians that go into detail more about this than I can. So I'm just somebody who's like, yeah, this is something that's like, it's sort of like a trend where, um, you know, you have somebody who's like in a feature and then people will see it, um, whether or not it's going to be a box office hit or a bomb, who knows. Um, it's kind of like, it's like a huge gamble. It's kind of like a huge wild card. Who knows if it's going to be successful? Who knows if it's going to be like, or in some cases, it might cause the studio to like close its doors, like it almost did with Disney back in the '80s. So you just don't know. You just never know. Um, and yeah, and I've noticed. I just noticed that you've worked on like with Hanna Barbera. I mean, you did mention Hanna from Hanna Barbera earlier. Um, Filmation, and um, yeah, I know that they kind of sort of have 
sort of had bad, like, I mean, not to say anything negative, but I know that they kind of had, like, did not really have the best reputations back in the 80s, so, um, yeah, it's kind of interesting to see how, when you really go back and watch these, it's like, wow, this is, like, kind of an interesting, you know, time period of an animation, where, um, with Hanna-Barbera, because I know that, um, when they started their company, they made the animation more, like, because I know they had to cut corners for a lot of their shows, but at the same time, it just kind of really, um, it really paid off because I remember watching, um, a documentary not too long ago where shows like Huckleberry Hound, Yogi Bear, um, Scooby-Doo and those old shows, um, they became huge hits in television as they moved into TV. And I know that that was kind of like the next big thing, like back in the day. So getting to work on TV animation back in those days, um, would you say that it's a lot different working in TV animation compared to working on theatrical films and releases and, you know, everything else that you, that you've done? Yeah. Yeah. Well, well I mean, you know, the thing about television is that you, you have to produce a lot of, a lot of animation for television. A feature film is basically, you know, 85 minutes, you know, 87 minutes. That's the Snow White length. I mean, uh, Brad Bird's Incredibles went over two hours, and that was considered mm -hmm. unusual. Uh, but but generally, like the you know um, about ninety minutes is about the norm. Uh, with television, you're turning out you know hours and hours of stuff. You know, I mean, He Man was uh, was like sixty five half hours, you know, of, of of animation, and that's that's a lot of material. So so you have to rely on what we call reuse. You know, which is like the walks all look the same. You know, you know, when the characters talk in dialogue, the dialogue is the same. Uh, you, you know, you see the same head and the moving mouths. And you you uh, and with television, especially, um, you tend to rely more on on dialogue than on action. Because like the old the old Bugs Bunnies and the old, um, uh, you know, Tom and Jerry's and all was all about physical action, characters chasing each other and falling down and stuff. And all that action is a lot of a lot of work. Um, while uh, you know, if characters are saying something funny, you have like one head and moving mouths, and they're saying witty stuff. So you tend to rely more on the dialogue to carry the story than on the than on the uh, physical action. And, um, and 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 the shortcuts are kind of fun, you know. Like when you when you try to figure out how to make shortcuts interesting. So like, you know, I would do a show, uh, you know, I'd work on a thing where a bunch of characters are trying to get away from somebody and they and they they run into a stairwell and they fall down a flight of stairs. That, now, in, 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 the, in traditional animation, you would animate each character tumbling down the steps and where he lands and all. In the Hanna-Barbera system, they, they're running in a cycle and then they, then they run through a doorway that says stairs. And then they run out of the scene into the doorway, and then you shake the camera and you hear ow 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 ooh, 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 ow ow ow, and then you cut to them all already on the ground, like in a pile. So you avoid that big, long, complicated action scene. But it's kind of funny, you know, to to not see it, just as just to hear it and try to imagine in your mind like what's going on. So you would do a lot, like a lot of shortcuts like that, and. Again, uh, when I was working in Hanna-Barbera in the 70s, 
a lot of the artists, the main artists that we worked with, like Iwo Takamoto, who designed Scooby-Doo, oh, yeah. you know, um, they had worked on all the, the beautiful Hollywood stuff, like the Tom and Jerry's and the and Sleeping, you know, Iwo was like, uh, worked on Sleeping Beauty at Disney's and all before he went to Hanna-Barbera. So these guys, uh, old folks, knew exactly where to cut corners. Like they knew like how to make it uh, 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 less complicated, but yet it still was entertaining. Like like you still enjoyed, uh, you know, looking at it. Yeah, absolutely. Because I know when you mentioned um, the comedic timing in the cartoons, I know that some of the jokes or gags would just have the characters get flattened by something off screen. And that's kind of what makes it even funnier. Um, because I know that Chuck Jones, like the Wiley Coyote and the Coyote Roadrunner shorts are a good example. Because um, sometimes um, I know it's kind of like, okay, so it's just a coyote chasing a roadrunner, but Chuck adds a lot of variety with the jokes. Um, and with the amount of failures that the coyote runs into, like, I mean, of course, you could show him like falling off, you know, a ledge or sometimes you could just have him fall off screen or just get hit by something. And uh, or it doesn't have to always be like, um, yeah, there's like a different variety for how the slapstick and the physical comedy really works. Um, like we all know the rabbit season, duck season gag from the from Bugs and Daffy and Elmer, those shorts. And there's also um tom and jerry which would like you said a lot of it is all like it's physical comedy and um the reason why it really works so well is because the animation in those shorts um and if, i believe that mgm kind of had a larger budget than had than warner brothers so um they were able to have like much more fluid and just downright sophisticated animation now for tex avery um his animation mostly is a lot more like looser crazier wilder gags in his shorts um and tom and jerry mostly revolves around the physical comedy so i will say that both of them like when you watch a tom and jerry short and then you watch a tex avery short you kind of start to see like there is a lot of friendly competition with just how quick and just fast and who can produce the biggest laughs with how much of the physical comedy that they can really do and really do things that you can can't really do in live action. That's something that Tex Avery had arrived on because one of his mottos is like in a cartoon, you can do absolutely anything. And um, I just like how pretty much the jokes are, it's kind of like it's from one gag to the next and it just works very, very well. Um, especially for somebody like me, who's like really, who is always kind of like the fast paced cartoony action type of, kid back in the day um i know there's a lot of new stuff that's out now that i'm really enjoying um so yeah those are like pretty good examples um and for tv animation um i know that you couldn't really do that like just like how they did it in the old days um but at least like coming up soon there was like so we're i mean we're just about to get into the mid 80s part where um animation was about to boom in a very big way it was about to make a huge resurgence and a large part of that is due to who framed roger rabbit yes we're going to talk about that crazy wascoey rabbit himself um so yeah tell us about roger rabbit and the whole you know history and story about working with richard once again on that project now i know that he also made like 
another animated short. Um, I can't remember. I think it was proper. Yeah, I can't really pronounce it, but yeah, I know he was working on something else at the time. So yeah, Roger Rabbit. Let's hear all about it. Let's talk well, about it. Well, the, the the book was written um, by by Gary Wolf in 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 the late seventies, and it was called "Who Censored Roger Rabbit," and, and and he wanted to write a Philip Marlowe, Raymond Chandler style detective uh, detective story about the murder of a car, uh, you know, about the, a, a murder involving a cartoon character, and that cartoon characters walked around. Uh, with human beings and they worked at the studios just like everybody else and and, and it's it uh, disney bought the rights to it but then it kind of sat on their shelf for a little while uh, uh there, there was there was an animator named daryl van sitters who was trying to uh get roger off the ground to try to get the project going but it was hard to get the the studio uh, the studio management at the time was very conservative and they didn't want to they didn't want to take a gamble on something like that, you, you know, an untried character. They wanted to go with more of uh, uh, their old stuff. And really it was after the regime change where Roy Disney uh, uh, took control of the company and brought in Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg to kind of help, you, you know, turn the, uh, turn the studio around because they had already done something like that at Paramount. And, um, so there was a there was an upkeep in production there, and what happened was Jeffrey Jeffrey Katzenberg, our producer, was friends with Steven Spielberg. They they were longtime friends, and Steven had just done a, a a resuscitation of Warner Brothers, where you know Warner Brothers animation died in 1969. Basically, it really kind of ended. Chuck Jones went off and did uh, his own projects, Chuck Jones Productions or Acme Productions. But he left the company, and Tex Avery had left the company, and Frizz Frailing formed the Patty Frailing to do Pink Panthers. But Warner Brothers itself had kind of stopped doing stuff till around 1985, and that was because you know Spielberg, you know, was was uh, was producing Tiny Toons, and then later Animaniacs and all, and 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 that sort of led to a revival. So because he was friends with Jeffrey, and Jeffrey was Disney, the idea was. If we could take this project, this Roger Rabbit idea, we could put Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny face to face for the first time. Because Steven's like, I'll bring Bugs and you bring Mickey and, and you know, and they'll be face to face in this cartoon. And then the idea was to get Robert Zemeckis as the director, because Zemeckis had just done Back to the Future and had done Romancing the Stone and, and he had had a lot of success, uh, you know, with these type of effects movies. And then, and then Richard Williams also came in because he was sort of neutral, you, you know, because Spielberg wanted it done by Amblin and, and, and Disney wanted it done on the Disney lot. So the compromise was to use Richard Williams, who was British. So it was a sort of neutral ground. And, you know, and, and Dick, of course, was, you know, a, a fan of all the old animation. So, so that was sort of the genesis of how the thing came together. And, and, you know, and, and, uh, um, I think, let's see, they, they had to pay to get Betty Boop and they had to pay to get uh, uh, Woody Woodpecker. Uh, the, the MGM wouldn't give them Tom and Jerry and we couldn't yeah. get Popeye. <laughs> it's like, those are... Yeah. Those are the yeah. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. 
I yeah. think there was like a deleted scene where like they were at a funeral and like Popeye and Tom and Jerry were there, but like it was yeah. actually Casper that I've yeah. read online, but to remember never that scene is never gonna see the light of day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a that was a cut scene, you know. And yeah, because I, I remember when they were cutting stuff, Bob Zemeckis told us, he says, he says, Look, you know, like this is in PBS. We're not doing nine hours here. We we gotta keep this movie to 90 minutes. <laughs> no. Yeah. At yeah, least we got droopy though. Yeah, it did get droopy, which was good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and you know, I I animated Woody Woodpecker at the end, doing his famous laugh. You know, you know the oh, nice thing. Yeah, and, I don't know how we do. <laughs> I don't even know how. I mean, I know there was a way, but I don't even know because, like, I know that the laugh was by Mel Blaine. I just to this day, I never, I just don't even know how he did all everything that he could do. So it just, yeah. It just yeah. amazes me. So yeah, and it's interesting, yeah, because it was like some of Mel Mel Blanc's last work. Uh, oh uh, yeah, it was yeah, some of his last. Yeah, later. yeah, uh, just like Mae Questel, who was the voice of Betty Boop. Yeah, Betty Boop. Yeah, still did it. Did the voice, and uh, May uh, uh, was it May died? I think after nineteen ninety. It was nineteen ninety one. I think. I so not actually. Let me look at it quick. Yeah, that's that's fine. That's fine. So, anyway. oh, nineteen ninety eight. Okay. Oh, okay. Oh, she had a good. Oh, good, good. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, I met her in nineteen ninety, and and she was already like way up there in age, you know. But she still had the voice. Yeah, yeah, she could still do it. Nineteen oh eight. Yeah, like especially that late in her life, she still she just gave it her all. She could still do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So excellent. So it, yeah. So, it, so anyways. It, Yes, yeah, so it was kind of fun that a lot of the uh, a lot of the animators who got together, uh, who they put together, like Andrea Stasia and Willie Byer and James Baxter and stuff, you know, we all got together because we loved the old the old cartoons, and to get a chance to animate those cartoons, and do justice to to the uh, to the old artists, you know, to do it like the way they would have wanted it done, which is not limited animation not uh you know you know low key and everything just to be as crazy as possible was was just a lot of fun and, and all there's a lot of fun to work with and and, and uh you know and, and it was a big budget production and you know because usually because up till then people were always telling you to cut corners and to try to like keep keep the price down keep it trim don't don't don't, don't go crazy and here's a, a movie where they said go crazy <laughs> you know go ahead you know, and and that was the, that was like very refreshing to be able to get a yeah. chance to do that. You know, and the film was a big hit. So, mm -hmm. you, you know, uh, uh, I mean, the first time, the first time, uh, uh, you know, I was back in I was back in New York for the premiere, and you saw lines around the block like police barricades, like for a Star Wars movie. Except to see a cartoon, you were like, wow, that was amazing yeah um what was i also gonna say yeah that's kind of like the similar attitude that i get uh that's sort of like the vibe um when you watch a ralph bakshi film because like ralph bakshi and his animators they just pretty much go nuts there's like nope just you know what no nah, we're just gonna break all the rules and we're just gonna be rebellious just do whatever the heck you want to do that's just pretty much the same vibe that i would get if you're watching like yeah a ralph bakshi movie at least for me, though. Um, but that is really interesting to know about. Because Roger Rabbit was a, it was such a gigantic hit. Like, um, the critics and audiences love it. And it kind of, 
was the turning point on make having people become very interested in the golden age of animation again um yeah. and yeah. it was um just phenomenal yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's true that's true yeah so do, do you have anything in conclusion because i know we're over an hour right now so oh yeah um because i know you've worked on the disney movies from like the 90s um and i know that the times working on those was like i just wanted to ask like um if you could quickly recall like your best memories of working on like mermaid beast aladdin you know uh, the movies that you worked on in the 90s Pocahontas. yeah just to quickly go over them because i know that they were also like very just um just also really groundbreaking films of their own right because they it was during the time of the disney renaissance so how would you look back on the disney renaissance today well uh uh yeah i think it, yeah yeah i think it was like a great uh yeah it was a great time to be working on on those on those films and um you know it, it's funny it's funny because you know i'd already seen music in 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 the animated films and of course you know i've worked on a lot of musicals but uh, Howard Ashman and Alan Menken just kind of brought a special, you know, a, a, a special thing to the writing and the music where the music was very central and was very, um, it was very uh, catchy. Like, like the, the problem with earlier musicals was, it, you know, when you see a musical in the theater, uh, you know, it, it, basically you're paying a lot of money to sit in the theater and there's a guy standing on stage going, oh, you know, and singing. And you're like, okay, so I paid all this money. I'm going to listen to them sing. But when you in a theater, uh, you know, in a movie, and you see somebody uh, singing, they better be doing something. Because just standing there singing is not enough. You know, you you go, you got to be moving or acting. And and some early musicals, the characters literally would stop what they were doing and sing the song, and then the plot would continue. And you, and you go, you have to wait for the song to be over before the plot will keep going. But Ashman and Mencken had a way of working the plot into the, in, uh, you know, into the songs. So the beginning song of, of Bell, you know, in Beauty and the Beast, you know, there goes yes. the baker with his bread like always, the same old food to sell. Um, he, he put the plot in the, in the song. So she's saying, I'm Belle, I live here, but I'm not happy. I want an adventure. And then I'm Gaston. I like Belle. She doesn't like me. I don't care. I'm going to get her anyway. And, you know, and you get all that stuff from the first, from the songs. And and that's what Ashman was great at. And he also uh, was very fun. His dialogue was very witty. You know, you know so like, uh, you know, uh, hey, clear the way in the old bazaar. Hey, you let us through. That's a bright new star. Oh, come be the first on your block to meet his eyes. Da, 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 da. You know, it's like the songs were fun, you know, to see. And, um, and, and those actors brought an extra something to them. You know, people always wonder about, well, why is it always celebrities? Why is it always like famous people? Well, you know, I've worked with regular voice actors and I've worked with very good voice actors and I've worked with celebrities. Yeah. And sometimes the celebrities, they're celebrities for a reason. <laughs> you know, like there's a reason why Eddie Murphy was a millionaire at 23. He's very good. <laughs> you know, so when you work with him, he's very good. <laughs> you know, and a lot of the stuff they say is 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 excellent. You know, like working with Lawrence Fishburne. Uh, you know, he's he's a Shakespearean trained actor. 
So, so he, he gives you a lot of, a lot of good stuff to work with and getting a chance to work with all these great people, all these great actors and, and talent is, is so inspiring, you know, and it just gives you so much to work with. Just like what, when we were doing a, a Lion King, at first, nobody thought Lion King was going to be that big a deal. Everybody thought Pocahontas was going to be the bigger movie. And, and, and uh, you know, Elton John had done the music, but, um, but you know, most of the time when we were working with, with Elton's music, we just got a cassette with him with a little keyboard, and he's just sort of singing the song himself. And, and you know, and so hearing his, his voice and, and, and the keyboard, but it was Hans Zimmer who later brought in uh, all the African drums and Lady Smith Black Bombazo and, uh, you know, all the rich African sort of uh, percussion. So the first time we saw Circle of Life with everything, you know, you know, with the full score, everybody was blown away. They were all like, wow, this is really beautiful. The music is just, just, uh, it's, it's so rich and everything. And that's when we really knew we had something like, like this is really going to be big, you know? Yeah. The same can also be said for DreamWorks because you've mentioned you worked on Ants, Egypt, Holy Spirit, and of course the big one, Shrek, which has become a phenomenon in its own way. I mean, like there's like fan conventions from what, from what I could gather. And there's like, so much merchandise and just the internet has pretty much ran wild with it so yeah um and i know that um i'm pretty sure a lot of people also remembered the story of how like um and it's really funny too because i was just watching some of his stuff like just not too long ago chris farley like he was the original trek um but then after he passed away then it went to mike myers so was there like a huge difference with shrek i know you kind of answered this on the what's in my head podcast but what was so like do you feel like there's like a huge shift in direction like as far like when it comes to shrek's character and just how the overall production of that movie was after chris farley had passed and it went to and then mike myers had to step in and take over for um you know such a late beloved comedian yeah 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 well i mean the great thing with chris is that um uh, yeah chris would take like uh, whatever the dialogue, however the dialogue was written, he would take it and make you laugh. You know, he just had a way yeah. of stuff. He was really good at it. Yeah, he, he was very funny. A very nice, yeah. very nice man too in person and all. So, and 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 um, yeah, it was a shock when he passed away. And um, uh, um, uh, and Mike Myers was like his best friend, and, and so so he agreed to step in, you know, and, and do the project. And, and and then like partly through, Mike's decided I want to do Shrek with a Scottish accent, and you're like, okay. So then we had to like refix all the scenes that had been done up till then, so so that it matches his accent. So it went through a lot of changes. It went through a couple of directors and a couple of rewrites and all because the, the children's book was very small. Like the William Steig book of Shrek, is something like thirteen pages. You know, it's like a small book, and we had to make a ninety minute movie out of it. So, so you had to fill out all that, all that detail, you know, on, on the character. And, and, and I swear, like up until the weekend it opened, I didn't know what it was going to do. You know, people were like, you think this will be a hit? You know, I don't know. <laughs> and then it was a gigantic hit. And you're like, wow. It was. Came out, I mean, it, it came out the same year as like, what was it? Like Monsters, Inc. And like, 
I think it just yeah. kind of was like the time where like CGI was starting to become like the next hot thing. Um, yeah. And while I love traditional animation, and I really, really do, um, it just showed that to companies that CGI is kind of the way to go. And while I do really miss like the traditionally 2D animated stuff, like what we've been getting with CGI, like especially now, um, we've been getting like some really great stuff that is becoming out in the last few years. Um, let's see, I know there's like streaming services that people are making like uh, for Netflix, Hulu, and you know, um, stuff like that. And for movie theaters, like, um, I think it's really safe to say that the pandemic had really changed like how we work in the industry, like even more so with the least past few years, because we've all kind of been working from home. We're kind of doing remote remotely. We're just working freelance and, you know, stuff like that. So I don't know what the future is going to hold for the industry, but hey, nowhere else to go but of. Um, and I also love how in the 2000s you've done. I think it was Osmosis Jones, Looney Tunes, Harvard's Yeah, yeah, I'm just kind of listing off like the amount of work that you've done. So um yeah, I just wanted to ask real quick, like and I know that I think I've seen like read like a magazine that you were listed as one of the most important people in animation, which um yeah, I definitely can't argue with that. So um I know I feel I bet you probably must wear it with honor and pride for being one of the most biggest names in the entire industry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so and um, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm I, I saying, did you have a question on that? Or? Oh, no, I was going to say, um, how is it like to be like regarded as one of the most important people? I see. I see. Well, you know, you know, I mean, you, you do your work and everything and, and, um, and it's nice to know that you can make a difference, you know, and, and, um, I, yeah, I was very fortunate that that uh, that a number of the projects that I worked on did well, and and, and it's funny because even the movies that financially don't do well, sometimes they have a shelf life afterwards. Like Osmosis didn't do well in its initial release, but it's been seen in schools and it's been seen by a lot of people since then. And 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 what I was thinking is interesting is is that I get a lot of fan mail from like doctors and people who teach in medical schools. Where it's like, where it's like, you know, the uh, uh, medical students and stuff, like you know, you know, get off on seeing Osmosis Jones because it's it's explaining like bodily functions and all in a way that everybody can understand, and and we actually had a couple of uh, um, advisors on the film who were who were uh, uh, professional medical people. You know, so I could call them up and ask them, like, you know, how high can the human temperature go before uh, organ failure begins? Oh, about 105. Like, oh, OK, thank you. You know, and start to figure out all these different things. But um, it, it's I mean, the fun is is just, you know, going from picture to picture. And then you suddenly look up and go, wow, you know, that's a pretty that's a that's a pretty good run, you know, uh, and so I'm feeling pretty good about my record and all. And I yeah. love to I love working with young people now because I thought when I was young, a lot of older artists took their own time to take time to teach me and to kind of help me with my you know career. You know, I don't know, it's a little fireman's kid from Brooklyn. Like, what the hell? You know, what am I to them? But but they understood it. Uh, they saw a kindred spirit, and they saw somebody who could keep on their legacy. So when I'm teaching young people, I feel like I'm paying back to them, 
like I'm giving them, you know, I'm repaying my debt, you know, for, for giving me a, a nice career. Yeah. So for one of my last questions, since we are definitely running out of time here. Um, so talk about your, um, because I know that a lot of people have looked, they do look up very, they hold you in high regard because um, as being a board member for the ASIFA Hollywood and Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Science, Sciences, um, you can just talk about your time being on the Board of Governors and representing the Future Animation and Short Films Division. Um, you could just talk about your time of serving as vice president and just working in the unions and, you know, before uh, we get to talk about the union stuff, because that's always fun to talk about on my podcast. Yeah, yeah. especially well, this year. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that, you know, the thing to understand is, is that, uh, you know, the animation community is a very small community. And, and, and you know when you when you figure with the rest of Hollywood and live action and television and and games and all that kind of stuff, so we all know each other, and 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 we're all kind of a family because we're the same kind of tribe of uh, you know I think Bob Kurtz is one a, a animation director said we're all wonderfully damaged people, that's <laughs> how so we like to do this crazy thing. That's a pretty crazy. good way of putting it. That's funny. Dark yeah. way, <laughs> but yeah. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So, so I think, it, it, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, like uh, uh, the thing that I found out that when you're working this way is that you have your biological family, that that's your family, and then you have your professional family. And, you, you know, you have, you know, your elders like Chuck Jones and Seamus Culhane, and you have your children and you have your crazy cousins like Ralph Bakshi and John Crick Falusi or something. Oh, you know, yeah, yeah. You know, you know, but it, but we are of a family, and the uh, a lot of people in the film community. You know, when I say film community, I'm I'm speaking in you know in terms of like a, a um uh, you know a, a label of just meaning entertainment in general. But you find that a lot of people put in, um uh, uh, um you know volunteer work to make things happen. You know, I mean the Motion Picture Academy is mostly volunteers. You know, and and Asifa is, uh, is mostly volunteers. It's people doing stuff beyond the community, like June Foray, who was the voice of Rocky the Flying Squirrel. Oh yeah, was at every meeting. She was at every event. She was hosting stuff. She was sponsoring things. She was always doing stuff. God bless her. You know, and uh, yeah, she died just short of her one hundredth birthday. Yeah, so within like three months of her one hundredth. You know, but. Um, but the, you know, and she was working all the way up to the end practically like she said she said you know she's like you know she'd say don't print my age because you know <laughs> like i, I want to keep getting work you know and and uh but what's great is that there is that little extra something that people do to pro you know because we have to promote animation because people will kind of like forget about it you know like you have to you know remind people that that this is an important art form and it's a very and and you know and it's a very influential art form and and uh and and it deserves preservation and continuation and and to know that there's a history to it i mean uh, you know i was, was very involved with the in the academy museum that just opened this year uh you know nice. we've been talking about doing a museum for 100 years like in the 1920s they were talking about we need a museum you know and and here we actually built the damn thing finally <laughs> you know and and we made sure that animation is an important part of it so there's a very a, a good size animation wing to it 
and, and you know and i think we're going to keep adding to it and all and keep it growing because you, you know you want to remind people that there was this amazing stuff being done and you know and it's it's worth a second look because you know you'll have a good time you know and and you'll enjoy seeing what you what you're seeing and you know and the fact that you know we're in hollywood you, you know i mean i mean i know like we talk about hollywood as a town but hollywood is a as a generic thing is you know oh, southern california you know it, it, you know like when i was in uh, when you know i was giving a lecture in japan and they would say well you're a hollywood guy and i go well technically i live in the valley and i work in glendale you know and and, <laughs> and they go no it's all hollywood it's all hollywood to them you know so right. but, you know so when people come and visit here like right now you can go to hollywood boulevard and you can see all the the foreign tourists stepping over the junkies and the hookers you know looking for hollywood you know and yeah. it's, like, it's like we got to give it to them you know it's like when i go to paris you know i want to see paris you know you know i don't want to go to a mcdonald's or a starbucks you know i want to see paris you know so 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 we have that that you know legacy you know the the great artists and filmmakers of the of the 1930s and 40s entrusted us with this business so that we could hand it on to the next generation healthy and 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 vibrant and uh, and dynamic and uh, you know I, I, i've i've tried to do a, a lot of sort of uh, volunteer work to make sure that kind of thing happens and uh, and, and a lot of uh, other people feel like that as well and um i think it's uh, you know i think it's bearing fruit you know because the museum's doing well and uh you know and the fact that this people are very excited about the old films that's a great thing too yeah so i know you mentioned earlier that you're also a teacher you know you're an animator writer historian educator so what do you really get the most out of teaching and educating young artists everywhere and um what would be something that you know if what's the biggest piece of wisdom that you were to give to somebody who is like you know new and is getting their start in the industry what is something that you really love and enjoy the most out of you know educating a new young generation of artists out there everywhere getting into the business well um, their names out there pretty much yeah 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 well i mean i, I mean yeah the, i mean the best thing that i try to teach people is that is that yeah it, it's like learn everything that's gone before and then you'll know how to, you know, move everything onward. You know, the, I, I think it was Churchill who said, um, uh, "Art without uh, art without tradition is like um, sheep without a shepherd." You, you know, it's like it's like you need to know what happened before to know where you're going to go. You know, so Osamu Tezuka, who was like one of the great manga, you know, and and anime people. Uh, uh, you know, and, and a lot of um, the, the next generation of Japanese directors worked under him, like Miyazaki and all, and uh, Oshi and stuff. Um, uh, Tezuka loved Disney stuff. You know, he watched Bambi like 80 times or something. You know, he, he, it, you know, he, he, he was learning from that. And then the next, that generation was learning from Tezuka. So, so we learn from the past and, and, and then go forward into the future. So, so you know, if you're going to get in this field, don't neglect your past. Look at it, and then, and then, and then see what was successful and what wasn't successful, and 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 apply it to to what you want to do. So that's like you know, Art Babbitt, who's like one of the great animation teachers, 
uh, used to say that that you know you learn the rules and then you learn to break them. You know, and and uh, you know, and, and, and that's been a pretty good motto to you know to live and work by. So, you know, so with books, and I know uh, since we are approaching, like it's always going to be three thirty. So, talking about your books, real quick. Um, yeah, I know you've shared some of your um, bibliography, Bible, sorry, you've shared like, you know, the cookbooks and whatnot. So um, for the, you know, with your experience of being an author of several books yourself, um, so what is your goal? Like, what did you want to achieve or accomplish when it comes to making your own, putting out your own work? Like, because you got uh, many helpful resources for people out there. So with that, what do you really enjoy and what's something that you really got out of doing it? And what's something that you really want people to learn the most out of reading your stuff and um, getting to digest and, and absorb information from your writing chops? I suppose. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I think the thing is that, um, uh, you know, uh, I'm a film historian, and oh, yeah. and, and, and history, uh, as an art, uh, you know, as an art of study, you know, history came out of storytelling, because the very first historians, like you know, uh, um, like Homer and uh, you know the the uh, the uh, uh, the bards of the Middle Ages, and and you know those folks, they were all storytellers. And 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 being a, a coming as you know, I was a story artist in a lot of films, which is also storytelling. And, and and a lot of times, you know, you can learn a lot from from anecdotes and from uh, you know thing you know talking about people who lived before, because there'll be a time where people will go, "Who's Chuck Jones or who's Tex Avery?" You know, you know, and you want to make sure people remember who those people were because they were very important. It's like saying who's Charlie Chaplin or who's Buster Keaton. You know, you know, these were all very important people who made very important films, and and so being able to bring those people back to life, you know, in my writing and being able to explain to people uh, what happened before. Uh, I think will help them in, in you know, and not only in, uh, having a more enriching relationship with the art, uh, with the films they're watching, but should they want to go into a field like this, they have a they have a basis or a foundation to to uh, to build upon. Yeah. So well, that's some pretty something that's really good to take out of it. So um, I just want to say real quick, congrats for being awarded the. What is it? The June Foray Award at the Annie Awards from IASI of A, Hollywood. And um, you're also awarded the Dusty Award for Alumni Lifetime Achievement from the School of Visual Arts. So I just want to say congratulations for all the awards that you've um, accomplished and achieved over the years. Just wanted to get that out there. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I was even surprised that the cookbook got, got an award. I didn't expect that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, I don't think. Yeah, I'd probably be just as surprised too. <laughs> who know? Who knew? So anyway, well, thank you, thank you all for the for this uh, conversation. Yeah, of course. Um, do you have like any upcoming work or projects that we can look forward to that you want to share right now? Yeah, well, like I said, I'm, I'm working on a book about about uh, about the animation renaissance, you know, of the 1990s, and about how you know nice. all the changes that happened then, and, and and you know, basically telling our story, and uh, that'll that might come out uh, probably in another year, so probably the end of 23. 
three or something like that if I'm lucky. And uh, uh, yeah, and, and it's just it's just uh, it's just fun, it, you know. And um, then I'll probably write something else after that, but uh, who knows? So <laughs> yeah, and I know we've shout out like we gave a lot of names and mention. We gave so many mentions to some great people. So I was gonna ask like, who are some of your favorite people that you've worked alongside with in the industry? But I think you kind of answered most of my questions in like an hour and a half, <laughs> just talking about your career. <laughs> Yeah. But, yeah. but yeah, like I said, I was fortunate in that, in that, yeah, a lot of like really nice people, great people kind of mentored me and kind of uh, gave me advice and stuff, my own career. So that's why I feel, I feel good that I can pass it on to, to uh, uh, young people today. Yeah. Um, do you have any hobbies? Like what are some, something that not a lot of people really know about Joe? like anything interesting or fun or you know i i, I think the only kind of hobby i have uh you, you know when your full-time job is fantasy reality is where you go to relax so so um right <laughs> so true yeah yeah so i like read history and uh, and i'm oh interested yeah same in, yeah yeah i'm interested in history that has character to it that has personality you know yeah. you know like, like today is like what november 8th um yeah uh, you know, this is the anniversary of when Doc Holliday, the gunfighter, died, and and mm -hmm. Doc Holliday was a was a, a dentist who who very early on caught tuberculosis, and tuberculosis in the 1800s was basically a death sentence. You know, it was incurable. You know, and and nobody knew how to stop it, and so he kind of knew that he was dying for most of his life, and it's one of the reasons why he was such a bold gunfighter was that, you know, he's like, yeah, go ahead, kill me. He'll do me a favor. But but he actually won all his gunfights. So 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 he died in the hospital anyway. And his last words were he took a swig of whiskey and said, well, I'll be damned. <laughs> like, you know, you know I like stories like that. Yeah, you know, so just, so I collect stuff like that, like little, little, little uh, uh, anecdotes, but stuff that has a little, a little humor to it. That's not just, you know, dry you know recording of dates and things like that you know yeah. so all that stuff is kind of fun you know um when you read a lot of like ancient history sometimes reading it in the first person when you read ancient romans they kind of sound like us they sound like regular people you know they're like 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 in the middle ages like you you can't see yourself going on a crusade or taking a vow of silence or something but you read roman people and they like fashions and they like entertainment and they like to own things and you know you, you know go to the games and things like that and when you read them they just sound like regular people so so when you could bring those those stories back to life and stuff that, that's kind of fun it's a joy yeah well it has been a pleasure having you here um do you have like social media or like area do you have like any like you could just name your website or just places where people can reach out to you and check out your work and yeah just to follow you to see what your where your creative endeavors will be going you know in the foreseeable future yeah well it's a yeah i mean I'm, i have a website tomcito.com and a wikipedia page and, and all my links are on that. And if you go to Amazon, you just uh, look up my name and you'll see the list of all my books are, are for sale. And, uh, you know, I have a bunch of those and all. And, yeah. um, you know, uh, with the holidays coming, you, you know, if you want an interesting 
you know, cocktail, you want an interesting, you know, you know, roast or something like that, you know, for the holidays, you can check out my cookbook, which is fun. And um, yeah, you know, and ju just uh, keep watching cartoons. And I, and, and I hope everybody has a has a fun holiday season. Yeah, likewise. Um, any last words, like any last bit of wisdom or just where do you see everything moving forward to in the future? Just everything in general. But what would be your last piece of advice to all the listeners, viewers, to the audience out there? Yeah. Well, what would you I, want to close this out on? Yeah, um, I would say I would say just just, uh, uh, you know, this uh, the more things change, the more they stay in the same. And, and 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 that and that you know the more we know what's gone before us the better we'll know like you know how to how to move ahead and um things conditions change and things change and don't feel ever feel like oh everything's falling or everything's going to be bad and it, it's it 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 continues on it, it, you know in, in in a different way and um uh, you, you know like i've i've seen trends in the business i mean in three more years i'll be like 50 years in the business in, in film and and uh, i've seen ups and downs and ups and downs and, and and you know and to know that they're never permanent you know whenever whenever somebody says this is the way it's going to be from now on it usually is <laughs> you know like 10 years ago everybody was saying all movies are going to be 3d Everything's going to be goggle. You're going to put the goggles on in the theater and nothing else. That's all they're going to be is 3D forever and ever. Amen. And it's over. You know, people don't people don't wear the glasses anymore. You know, I mean, there's very few 3D movies out right now. Just like yeah. in the 80s, you know, in the 80s, uh, when the first when the Chariots of Fire came out and uh, every uh, the soundtrack was done on synthesizer. And they said, everything's going to be synthesizer. It's going to be no more orchestras, no more jazz bands, no more rock bands. Everything's going to be electronic forever and ever. Amen. And after a couple of years, everybody went, eh, they went back to, you know, traditional music uh, you know, instruments. So whenever somebody says, this is the way it's going to be forever. Don't think that it's, it's going to change and, and all, and, uh, and change is good. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Totally. So yeah. Um, any last words or just an outro that you want to give for the podcast? No, I think I gave it. Yeah. Um, I think I, I concur. Um, I think this is just pretty much a good way to wrap this up. So ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for watching this interview of station square. Thank you once again, Tom, for stopping by. Um, it's been a, huge honor and a pleasure to have such a respected um just somebody who is like in the industry that has been working for so long and it's just really nice to to talk to such a really beloved veteran here so i appreciate it and yeah just it's been a lot of fun getting to chat with you and um who knows maybe we'll do something like this again in the future who knows maybe we'll see but until then um, stay safe, everyone. This will be posted. Um, this will probably go up either later this evening or tomorrow, depending on how my schedule is. So um, more episodes will be on the way. So stay tuned next time on the Station Square podcast. This is Robert Jackson signing out of here. And yeah, vote. Happy holidays. And I love you all so much. Bye. 
Bye-bye. Peace.